One of the things in investing that is probably the most important component is the behavioral aspect. And you manage that all day long with your clients. I deal with that all the time. And so really what you're trying to do is how do I influence people to move in the direction that I need them to, but make it their idea? Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Show. This is Louis Giannis. I am the founder of WealthNet Investments. Today, we have an interesting topic, and I'm really excited about diving in, so let's get going. Welcome to the Market Call Show. I'm really excited about today's guest, Wesley Gray. After serving in the United States Marine Corps, Dr. Gray received a PhD and was a finance professor at Drexel University. Dr. Gray's interest in entrepreneurship and behavioral finance led him to found Alpha Architect. Dr. Gray has published three books, Embedded, a Marine Corps advisor inside the Iraqi Army, Quantitative Value, a Practitioner's Guide to Automating Intelligent Investment and Eliminating Behavior Errors, and DIY Financial Advisor, a Simple Solution to Build and Protect Your Wealth. His numerous published works has been highlighted on CNBC, CNN, NPR, Motley Fools, and a lot of other places. He has an MBA and a PhD in finance from the University of Chicago. He also has a BS from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Without further ado, let's dive in. Wes Gray, so good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Honored to be here. I got the opportunity to meet you briefly, really, one time for a presentation here in uh, Denver. And you were doing a discussion about quantitative investments and kind of your background. I was really intrigued. So I thought I'd just maybe have a little talk with you and share it to some of my audience. I was really impressed with your drive, actually. And I kind of wanted to get a little bit of motivation background, actually, from you, just hearing your background about being in the Marines and all that. Can you share with me a little bit about how you got in the Marines, what you did there? Yeah, sure. So I had a weird path to the service in a sense. I was in uh, the PhD program at uh, University of Chicago there, and I entered in 2002. And then the way PhD programs work, at least there, at least in the old days, is you just go through two years of just hazing, essentially, right? It's like hardcore coursework, doing research, and they're basically trying to kick you out, right? And so what happened is I did the first two years there, and I'd survive. You, you do these things called comps, like your composite exams. That's like the up or out stage. And I got to a stage where I was like, all right, I've been spending two years studying 15 hours a day, getting beat up by people that are just way smarter than me. And I'd always want to do the service, but the issue is I just had the timing problem. Like, well, do I do it after high school? Do I do it after college? Am I going to do it after PhD? Probably not. And so for me, it was just an opportunity like, hey, I'm going to do this anyways. And so I just literally took a sabbatical and joined the service. That was in 2004. And then in the Marines, technically I was a, uh, an 0203 ground intelligence officer which sounds fancy, but it's colloquially referred to as a grunt with a map in the Marine Corps. It's not like a James Bond deal. You basically, you do all the infantry pipeline, 
And then after you're done with IMSHA officer course, you do like another intelligence training pipeline, but then you basically get put into infantry type roles. And then at the time when I was in, just for whatever reason, I was doing what they call FID missions, like foreign internal defense, where you basically embed with foreign militaries and just learn from them and then teach them how to run their programs, basically. And in the case of some folks, like the Iraqis, like make sure they don't shoot themselves in the foot. But I spent time with like the Filipino Marines, the Japanese Self-Defense Force, and of course, the Iraqi Army. And then after that was done, I got out. Four years goes real quick wow. when you're well, I, I was going surprised. around the world. So Yeah, I mean, I was surprised to see that. Uh, did I read that right, that you... Do you know Arabic or you were learning Arabic or? I used the... to. So, I mean, I could still do it like Achiarabi, but, but it's, it, what happened with me is I was the, the designated Intel guy. So I'm supposed to be the smart person on the team. And <laughs> one of the things you learn about Arab culture in general, and, and really, frankly, it's more about Muslims is like their language is a big deal, right? Like it's part of their religion. Like it's kind sure. of like, uh, like you have to learn this language and respect it. And just like any kind of culture, it, when you're on a training team, your mission is to not make them do it like the Marines do it. It's to influence them to figure out how to solve problems in the construct of their culture and their way of doing things. And the right. best way that you build rapport with a different culture uh -huh. is to not make them be like you, but learn about them. And so obviously learning language to me was like a massive priority. So I spent a lot of time beforehand and there's also formal training we did but then obviously when you go there and all you do is you hang around with Iraqis that don't speak a lick of English and you get tired of doing call signs for everything it, you, learn you know quick. I have an aptitude for for learning languages I think yeah I didn't use a terp the whole time and actually served as the terp so I was able to to communicate pretty effectively in Iraqi Arabic which is not standard Arabic and, and how old were you at this time I was 20, I was in the service, I think I was 24, so I was 26, because I was in 2006. Uh, the um, reason why I ask is because a lot of people have a hard time learning a language at that age. Yeah. So yeah. you just kind of have this knack. I thought that was really interesting. What would you say your biggest learning was in that experience? And did any of that translate into your entrepreneur endeavors and finance endeavors in any way? Yeah, sure. That's a job that requires extreme patience and a willingness to drop your ego because because it's super easy to just go to a place where you're getting shot at they're blowing you up with ieds and nothing's working to just take the mentality you know what like f these people let's just go mm. shoot them so we have to learn is you have to learn to kind of like submit your ego and be like listen in the end i want to win and do what's right for our mission and for the states because that's the team i'm on team for so I need to think long game. And if I want to influence and do a good job on this mission for America, it's much more important to not be like, rah, 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 let's go shoot everything. But let's like do soft skills to build influence and build rapport to work with a counterparty to basically indirectly make them do what I need to do, but in a nice way. You can't just like mm -hmm. tell people to do stuff. And so I think that basic skill set, which I was you know, forced to learn in a situation where you kind of your life depends on it, that was great training because as you know, like one of the things in investing that is probably the most important component is the behavioral aspect. And you manage that all day long with your clients. I deal with that all the time. 
And so really what you're trying to do is how do I influence people to move in the direction that I need them to, but make it their idea? And that's basically what I used to do in the service. How do I get the Iraqi army to build endowment effects around basically policies, procedures, and tactics that we want them to deploy, but make it their idea? So, hey, we probably shouldn't like beat up prisoners and like torture them even though that's what they want to do because that's how they operate. It's not a very effective way. And if I just say, hey, stop doing it, they're going to be like, sure. And then go in the next room and just like beat the crap out of the prisoner. So we need to make it their idea of why it's a good idea. Similar like in investing, your investors might say, well, hey, Lewis, why don't we just go buy Tesla and Bitcoin? Because that's everyone else's getting rich that way. And even though we may think that those at the margin could be reasonable ideas, like we want to focus on like keeping costs down, keeping taxes down, keeping diversification. And so maybe we try to have them over time believe in those ideas. So they're not just saying, hey, Wes, you're an idiot. I'm just going to go all in on my Tesla because you don't know what you're talking about. So education is a big part of that. Yes. Educating and motivating. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Just learning how to influence people through soft skills. And my wife says, catch more flies with honey, I think. You know, that really surprises me. That's awesome. The reason why that surprises me, I thought you were going to say something like the discipline or the ability to rough it out, those types of things that you normally typically hear. Those are Uh, also important skill sets, but different people are influenced in different ways, right? Certain people you actually can use their ego against them in the sense that if indirectly there's someone who has that mentality, like I have that mentality, like I'll beat myself up to death and I feel like I'm letting my team down. If I'm not, like, I still feel like I'm in the Marines or something. Like I need to stay in shape. I need to work out. I always need to be ready in case someone tries to kill me. I probably have like a brain problem or something, but, but that's me. And I know a lot of people that are like that too, where they just need tough love. And you just say, listen, you're a fat ass, like work out more, (laughs) stop eating and shut up, do the work, right? Certain people, I can say that too. Same thing, investing, get rid of your like day trading habit and let's focus on fees, taxes, building a strategic discipline, diversified, boring portfolio. And they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, good, good. I just, I need you to just like reinforce that. But then Mm -hmm. other people, you can't do that. They're just not going to be influenced by the David Goggins or Jocko approach to investing, they might need a little bit more. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. So it's interesting you're talking about the ego. And so risk management is a huge part of the game. Yes. You talked about paranoia. I mean, in a sense, we kind of, as investors, need to be just a little bit paranoid, don't we? (laughs) At all times? Oh, yeah, no, 100%. (laughs) But you also, there's a really great paper, I think it's by Shifer Vishen, it's called Money Doctors. Because one of the things about academic research, especially like coming out of Chicago school, it's all about markets are efficient, prices are always right, like just go buy index funds and call it a day because behavior is not allowed to like be involved. But Mm -hmm. then the money doctor's argument is like, well, listen, there's a reason and a very good reason why you need to pay a third party to help you in this world of investing. Because most people, if they look at the stock market, their natural inclination is like, why would I ever do that? I'm going to have 50% drawdowns. It makes my hair fall out and it stresses me out. So people left to their own devices are going to do the worst decisions and they're just going to put their money under a pillow. 
So the concept of why do people pay what seems like a lot of money for a money doctor is it's a third party that will force you to invest in stocks, invest in risk, and, and do things that are very uncomfortable. But that's what's going to allow you in the long game to outperform inflation and, and let your money work for you. So you need you kind of need a money doctor to prevent you from your worst tendencies for a lot of people, which is just put all their money under a pillow and wait for the crash. That's what you know, everyone says that like, well, and I <laughs> we you probably deal with people all the time, like, well, yeah. I'm 50% in cash because I'm just waiting. This market's too crazy. They've yeah. been saying that for 10 years yeah. now. Uh, right? The opportunity just, cost is enormous. The opportunity cost is enormous, and all the evidence in the world suggests that you should do the opposite of that. Be strategic, be allocated to risk to the extent you're comfortable with it, but you just need a third party. Kind of same reason why a lot of people have to hire coaches. Yeah. Me, I don't need a coach. I beat myself up, and if I don't work out, if I don't get up, do something, like I'm my worst coach. I don't need, need one, right? But a lot of people, they need someone, even though they could just get up and go do their exercise, they need someone to yell at them and guide them because mm -hmm. that's just how they operate. So same thing. A lot of people just need a coach. And yeah, I, I have a question along yeah. the lines of just being invested in all that. What is your yeah. sense about or philosophy about assessing risk tolerance and, and like, what is the perfect portfolio to you? Well, there's a hyper rational, which is the following. How do I, given different objectives and goals in my capital, how do I find the most efficient way to get there after tax, after fees, with all the tools available to my capital base, right? Obviously, if you're a billionaire, you got different tools than if you got like a thousand bucks. So that's the rational thing. And so I would come up with some like global optimized portfolio with some sort of like Monte Carlo thing about how we're going to withdraw, blah, 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 right? That's what a lot of people do. In my experience, it sucks because people, <laughs> they can't work with that. So, so one of the concepts that we kind of use, and I see a lot more advisors use it, even though it's quote unquote irrational, is just buckets. So for example, we have a three bucket thing. Bucket one is like short-term reserve. Bucket two, we call risk managed growth. Bucket three is like long-term growth. And so you go to the person and say, listen, how much money do you need where you lose your job or just whatever it is. Some people need five years of cash under the pillow to give them warm and fuzzy. Some people need six months. That Whatever it is, that's in short-term bucket, right? Great. And you need to put them out in there such that if the other buckets get vanquished, you don't even sweat it. You're not even worried about it, right? Because you can always look at that short-term bucket and see that 500 grand in your cash. And yeah, is that inefficient? Sure, in theory, but in your head, it keeps you focused. Midterm bucket is like that five to 10 year. That's where we do like a lot of stuff you do, like trend following, risk manage, where we want to participate in growth, but we can't die, right? So it's super risk managed. We're not trying to knock the lights out, but we're not putting it under the pillow. And this may be because, hey, you might need to buy a car. You need to pay for a kid's college or whatever, or it's just, you need kind of a warm and fuzzy bucket. Put some money in there. Then in long-term bucket, Okay, this is literally, if you ask me anything before 10 years about this portfolio, I might just slap you in the face. This is money <laughs> that you just cannot be thinking about. It's go for broke. It's the all-in equity factors, go wild. We don't care what it looks like next to the S&P. That's what that bucket is. And I've just found that in the end, when you do a look-through basis on that portfolio, it basically becomes your 
globally optimized, sharp ratio efficient, blah, 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 theoretical portfolio. But the framing of it is way better because the humans that actually do this can just focus on, okay, short-term bucket, I got money there, market's down 50%. I don't care because I have five years of money, good cash sitting there. Like, mm -hmm. why sweat it? That's so, so true. The stuff that you learn, CFA 101, Finance 101, academics, doesn't really emotionally no. and behaviorally work for individuals, for many individuals. You might I occasionally agree. find an engineer or something like that will kind of get it. But then a lot of times I found that people that are really uh, engineer oriented or maybe yeah. they're a doctor, they tend to actually feel like somehow you should be able to create consistent returns above inflation yeah. and everything every year, every month. And that's not physically possible unless you're the medallion fund. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you're cheating or have some inside <laughs> scoop. You're right. It's just, yeah. So there are some people that will fall in that category and not to belabor that. So do yeah. you, when you run across that, what is your approach in the conversation in educating and motivating them to maybe yeah. kind of change their so, way of thinking? So, so our firm mission is to empower investors through education. And we always say our products are gonna be bought, not sold. And the owner of our product needs to get endowment effect. It goes back actually to like with dealing with like the Iraqi army, trying to say, hey, let's not torture people. Like I can tell them that all day long, but if they don't believe it and it's not their idea, they're gonna just do what they always did, right? So our whole ethos is listen, you're the geeky engineer that's 10 times probably smarter than I am. We're going to give you our full process, the full logic, the full data, the full everything, and we will just beat you to a pulp on here's the data, here's the information. You go DIY it, look what we do, reverse engineer it, peel out whatever bad things, good things. We'll answer a million questions. And in the end, you're going to get an endowment effect on this idea. And now that it's not Wes's idea, but it's your idea, and you quickly realize it's such a pain in the ass with taxes, fees, and whatever to do it yourself. Because we, we always give her, oh, you want the names? Great, here's the names. Like, you go have a party, right? But in the end, most people, after they've done that for a while, they're like, oh yeah, I'll just go buy the ETF or whatever, because that's 10 times better. And so we just want to get the engineer type, which I actually personally love, because they're great clients in the sense they want to understand. But the key is, if you don't get it where it's their idea, to your point, if it stops working, quote unquote, they'll be like, oh, that's because Wes has a stupid idea. That's the beauty of using a quantitative approach, because then yeah. you can show data going a long time back in time yes. with various regimes and lots of yeah. different things. That, but one of the other issues is, and I was thinking about this morning when, when yeah. I was working out, in my personal career, I went through this, the basic, you probably did the same thing, stock picking, fundamental yeah, analysis, yeah. Warren Buffett. So you've got this kind of dichotomy between Simon, you know what yeah. I'm saying, versus yeah. Warren Buffett, okay? Yeah. And you have a lot of investors that want you to either be Warren Buffett or to be on the other end, pure quant. When I look at kind of how you're doing the quant, it's not short-term patterns and things like that. It's really kind of long-term, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, more of a long-term type factor analysis. And those tend to be streaky. They do well long-term, but then yeah. there's like long periods of time where it's rough. And how, how do you, how yeah. do you um, work through that conversation? with people? Well, I mean, we just always tell people, and you probably tell them the same, like, like in the end, life is hard. And if you want good things, it's painful. And so when we make our portfolios, we're trying to encapsulate evergreen ideas 
interinvestment approach where I put my own personal capital and all of it into the same idea, right? Mm -hmm. And that's great. But the problem is these are open secrets, right? Like nothing we do, nothing anyone, like these are things that are known by every other PhD and geek on the planet. And, and we just chose to say, listen, is there any edge in putting out another portfolio that has 1% tracking error that basically wiggles around the S&P 500 50 basis points a year? No, because I can go buy Vanguard for free. That's stupid. Where is the one area where there's a blue ocean that no one wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole? Well, it's called career risk. Let's build concentrated, active factor portfolios that we already know because we could back test it. There's plenty of opportunities to underperform for five-year streaks easily, right? No one with half a brain would ever start an asset management company where at the outset, you know, there's a very high probability that at some point in your career, you're going to have a five year or more underperformance streak because that's like the death of being an asset manager. So what we just said is, listen, that's the edge. Mm -hmm. We're going to package this pain train product. And if you don't have 20 year horizon and a lot of discipline and a willingness to look past like what the S and P is doing this week, then you're just not going to be a great client, but there are no products out there that do that. And we're going to deliver it tax efficient, affordably with full transparency. If you got the 20 year horizon, great. Join the party. But that's one, that's one of the, the things that really yeah. struck me when I was listening to your presentation. One of the things that struck me was that the concentration, because there's plenty of quant tilted factors yeah. funds out sure. there, but you're saying, no, we're going to, we're going to like get the cream. We're going to get that top. Going it, and we're, just, it, and we're going to focus on that. And then we're going to yeah, diversify exactly. those factors. Which makes a lot of sense, which also helps a lot too, because there's non-correlation between those factors, or at least to some degree. Yeah, yeah, you, you get some benefits. For some, sure. but not, not a ton. I mean, in equities. Yeah. But in the trend following, so that's the thing that also yeah. surprised me. When we sat down and we had a little dinner that one time yeah. uh, we were together, what surprised me was that you were doing some managed future stuff underneath the hood. <laughs> because yeah, normally sure. the, the academic people that I've run into, that with academic yeah. backgrounds, they literally shun that whole concept, even though the data on that is amazing yeah. in terms of how it diversifies. In fact, if you run their, the typical mean variance optimization type stuff that these academics purport are yeah. amazing or whatever, it says you should have 50% or more of your portfolio in these managed futures funds, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, I agree. What, what, which we, obviously you would never do, but, or I wouldn't do yeah. it, but. Well, I what, personally do that, but that's another conversation. Because you're rational. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, so let but, me, I have a unique perspective on this because I came out of the belly of the beast that basically says that anything with trend or futures is a bunch of baloney, right? University of Chicago. So I was brainwashed at that place. Like Eugene Fama was my advisor, for God's sake, right? The guy that like <laughs> invented this idea of efficient market hypothesis that oh, you're going to use momentum or trend falling to beat the market or what? Yeah, yeah, right. That's like devil worshiping. And so I was honestly kind of on that train for a long time. And then what happened is we got seated by this monster family office where they had been talking about this trend falling stuff, like time series momentum, all the Spanish futures. I'm like, guys, this is a bunch of crap. Like, haven't you ever read a research paper? I was just being in like, cause that was my brainwashing. 
And, but, but I'm pretty open mind or I like to think I'm an open-minded person. So I said, all right, I'll hear it out. And then like any good engineer or control freak, I just redid every back test, redid it all myself to look at it, you know, went as complex as you can back to simple. And I was like, wow, like, actually, this is really interesting stuff. And this makes a lot of sense to me. And then, of course, now the academic research, as you know, has caught up. There has been a whole slew of paper the last 10 years to talk about time series momentum, and they've been published in the top tier journals. But I think it's just like anything, like in even in academic research, it's peer reviewed. You have cultural bias, where if kind of the mantra is like, hey, we're going to pump efficient market hypothesis, because guess who runs all the journals? Right. All the people that got published on EMH, and they're kind of all like the overseers. So it's really hard. And even academics, they try their best to be unbiased. But by nature, you just have hidden biases of getting this research out there. I've come around to it. But that said, and I think one of the reasons that there's so many people in academic research or quote unquote, more proper people is the history of like managed futures trend falling, it is filled with a lot more shady characters and like, oh, you can make free returns, no risk thing. So I think it just kind of built like a bad reputation because there are a lot of people that promise you everything and screw it up. I mean, that's everywhere, but it seems like that's more in like tactical, technical trend momentum type folks. So I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm a believer. I'm just a convert. I converted to the religion later in life. Within within a context of a diversified portfolio, for sure, it is still a tough strategy because it's uh, it's trying to find the outliers, and yeah. you're profiting from outliers and trying to preserve when you're not the outliers. Trade trends aren't yes. working. That's basically it. And the more you diversify, the better it is, mostly. And you need to have a lot of non-correlated assets to make that work, and then put it with a stock and bond portfolio, and you got a lot of good stuff going on. Yeah. Um, well, the it, other it, challenge is the behavioral challenge. Is Because if you run like managed futures, where it's designed to kind of like work when the world blows up, the problem with those is most of the time, they just underperform, they got a lot of volatility, a lot of noise, and people are watching S&P go up every day. Correct. And they're like, what is this thing that just zigs around? And you have to explain like, well, remember this whole thing about like, it's negatively correlated or not correlated. That's the point. It doesn't go up the S&P every day. And then, of course, whenever the world blows up, now that they've wanted to fire you and get rid of all their managed futures because the S&P just keeps doing this and you keep doing this, then they want to buy it after the fact. They're like, oh, that thing went up a lot when the market blew up. And you're like, well, that's why you got to hold it strategically. Like, like exactly. remember for the prior 10 years where we lost money for nine of them? And then you finally got rid of it. And now yeah. you want it after the fact. Like that's the issue with those products is behaviorally, you're always fighting the non-correlated or negative correlated aspect of them. Is the yeah, it's almost them. better for them not to see that return stream. Yeah. Have I it agree. embedded in, in the product. It's regulatory. Yeah. The regulations make things rough. Uh, yeah. It's in some ways. I found that very fascinating that you did that just because of your background and, you know, University of Chicago. So that shows that you have an open mind. If you worry about your investments, need to make complex financial decisions, or pay unnecessary taxes, a lack of proper financial planning and investing may already be costing you a great deal. When you are ready to turn your peace of wealth into peace of mind, go to wealthnetinvest.com and click on the schedule a call button to talk to us and get a free consultation today. 
When you started Alpha Architect, how did that progression happen? Did you, you started off doing separately managed accounts for individuals and then scaled up? Or what was your path there? What has been well, your path so far? It, basically, the path was a lot of dead bodies and bad ideas around the way. So, <laughs> so I like going back to like even in college, I set up a hedge fund initially in like 98 with like a couple million dollars. And I think I set up another one in 2002. And I was like, oh, I'm going to service. Got out, launched another hedge fund September 2008, which terrible timing. So I had all these different ventures where I always knew I wanted to be an asset management because I just loved it. And then all these things blew up. And then I think it was like early 2009, I ran into, it was a, a pretty rich family. And they reached out to me and they're like, hey, like, I love your research, been reading a lot about your stuff. Let's do something set up this market neutral, crazy hedge fund thing. Anyways, long story short, that deal went south because like operational issues. And then I was had to go back to go raise capital. And I got another cold call from like a, literally a billionaire when I was starting up to be a prof. And it was like, okay, I'm not going to be a hedge fund manager. That game is dead. There's no spreads. Like this is early before now everyone realized this. I was like, what can we do different? Well, instead of being a two and 20, Let's focus where no one's going. Low cost, affordable, like hedge fund strategies, but done in a much cleaner way. And, and then I had this big family that also got smoked out in 2008 and all their hedge funds. And so we just had this serendipitous timing of the meeting of the minds of let's try to do what we call affordable alpha. But how do we deliver super unique weirdo stuff affordably? So after fee, after tax, that's the best deal out there. And, they, and then they kind of seeded and funded our business. We launched after two years of kind of internal due diligence with them, just helping them assess things. We launched like a 50 mil seed in SMA. Then I learned about the ETF tax deal in 2013. And I, and I was like, hey, SMA is crazy. Like we should be doing this in an ETF wrapper. And so mm -hmm. that's how we, that's, we ended up launching the ETF business basically. And we used our SMA assets to, basically seed those ETFs. Um, now the rest is history. We got like almost $2 billion now. It's crazy. Um, That's awesome. That's a great so. story. And so what do you think attracted those people to your work? Do you think it was just your publishing of research that attracted them to you? And then there was kind of a belief yeah. phase. What do you think was the attraction? Uh, yeah, I mean, we put out a lot of research and then we wrote a book called Quantitative Value that I think opened a lot of people's minds to like, hey, there's a different way to do it. Like, like we're just going to, we're not quant like black box, Jim Simons. That's not what we're doing. We're fundamental investors like you, like Stockpicker, Ben Graham, Warren Buffett. But we have realized through too much humble pie that monkey brain screws up everything. So all we're going to do is basically systematize the thought process through which a fundamental investor goes and put that into a trading strat, basically a portfolio. And that is what quantitative value the book was all about. How do we do a reasonably concentrated, focused, buy cheap stocks at a really high quality and have horizon portfolio without the human involved. And I think that just resonated with a lot of people because they were all coming out of 08 where all the master of the universe hedge fund mm -hmm. guys like blew up and they're like, well, that's not working. And then index funds are awesome and great. But, you know, at some point those large cap market cap indices those become concentrated risks too. You might want to do things at the margin and there's always going to be a market for like boutique weirdo strategies 
that are a little bit off the reservation as well. So that's pretty hmm. much what so, I think we're so, just good timing. Uh, one of the things that baffles me is typically a quant type strategy will want uh, a quant manager will want to have more stocks than 50 because yeah. they figure that they have to, in order to capture that factor, they need to have more yeah. exposure to it. But you've decided not to do that. How did you get rid of that idiosyncratic risk, or the, I call it pothole risk, where you're walking down yeah. the road, your position size is too big, and bam, one yeah. knocks your portfolio off the wall. Uh, yeah. how, so, how do you deal with that in your quant approach? Yeah, so it's actually the opposite is the empirical finding, is that actually the more concentrated are, the more characteristic exposure you get. And the reason quants traditionally don't do that is they're benchmark-centric and benchmark-driven and the risk profile, like they're going to come at like, hey, I need to basically hit the S&P 500 plus or minus, right? And I'm going to add factor tilt. I'm going to sector neutralize everything, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, their portfolio characteristics look very similar to the index. Why? Because they're concerned about the index. Yeah. I'm concerned about making money, period, over 20-year horizon cycles, and what do I know about the academic research and what the data say? Well, let's say value. What is the value factor? Value factor is done in academic research where some researcher will say, hey, let's go buy the top 10% cheapest stocks. Let's short the 10% most expensive. Wow, there's a spread there. Great. I believe in that research. That research does not translate into let's go buy an 800 stock portfolio. Remember, the documented research bought the top decile cheapest and shorted the top decile most expensive. So as a starting point, if you want to capture the value factor, you have to own cheap stocks. Let's do some simple math. There's a thousand stocks in the universe, and we can rank them on cheapness from the most cheapest to the thousands cheapest. You think if I set a portfolio of the top 500 cheapest, great, it's going to be a little bit cheaper than just owning all 1,000. If I buy the top 200 cheapest, because I buy order, I rank order these things, well, guess what? The, the characteristic of the 200 stock value portfolio is going to be way cheaper than the 500 stock, which is going to be way cheaper than the 1,000 stock. And you can do the logic out to like, well, why don't we just own one stock? We'll just own the cheapest security, because clearly that is definitely got the most value juice relative to the 1,000 stock, right? But to your point, there's an element of idiosyncratic risk. Like, we probably don't want one stock portfolio, but as you know, like diversification has its limits and around 50 stock portfolios is where you got rid of most of your idiosyncratic risk. And now you're just diversifying because there's this trade-off where mm -hmm. a 50 stock portfolio has a very concentrated value exposure because it's the 50 cheapest stocks in the universe. However, it's 50 stocks. It's not one. And yeah, do I get quote unquote, more diversification if I go to 100? Sure. But now I dropped the PE on that portfolio from it was 10 and now it's at 15, right? So there's always a trade-off between what you're trying to capture and basically the risk. And you know we think 50 is probably reasonable. You could go 30, you could go to 100, whatever. We can argue about that. But I know for a fact that I get more value exposure fundamentally in a 50, 100 stock value portfolio than I do in 800. Because mechanically, you can't own cheap stocks if you have to own 800 stocks because you're going to own Tesla in there. And, you know, and that's why if you look at indexes that are quote unquote value and you look at some securities in there, they're some of the most expensive securities in the marketplace. 
and they only have 1% weight to them. But why would you put any weight to a stock if you're trying to buy the value factor? You would yeah. only want to buy cheap stocks. So it's exactly. just like common sense if you don't care about career risk and benchmark hugging, which we don't. So that's and so your, your sector constraints are pretty wide open. I mean, you have we, you have to keep it unconstrained if you want returns. That's just empirical fact. If you're a long only factor investor and you do sector neutralization, the best example is 99. Okay, the benchmark has 40% exposure to tech and tech, the cheapest tech firm is 100 PE. That is not the value factor, people. That is called glamour investing. That's not going to capture the value factor. We need to not do that because it's going to force us to do things that is not, it's against our, the grain of what we want to do. And the reality of it is you want to buy cheap stocks, you got to go to the areas of the market that everyone hates. So you're going to be overloaded in stuff and in industries that just by nature, there's a lot of distress and hate. If you're long only, if yeah, you're I mean, long, if you're long, I, short. I, 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 I remember when I first back tested the sector constraint stuff back in 19, late 90s. And yeah. I was surprised at how a small move in the sector constraint dropped your results down. Yeah. Like you could literally, if you were trying to get to, uh, max it out at 15% per sector, there's 10, 11 sectors. Yeah. At the time I did, I think it was 10. I think yeah. there's 11 now. It would just go down dramatically as you tried to make it more equal. But if you opened it up to 30, 50, then, then all of a sudden your alpha goes up. But if you let yeah, it go yeah, too just, far, yeah. then your risk gets pretty ugly too. If you let it, yeah. if you let it be too wide. Yeah. You so, don't want to go crazy. You don't, you want to be like a hundred percent in the energy patch. Right. But like, so our constraints is basically like a 20% constraint, which means you got enough flexibility, but you're never off the reservation on things. So, so that's kind of like the trade-off that we feel is reasonable but I don't want to be like hyper constrained. Cause like, like I said, in 99, I don't want to own any tech stocks. Cause they're like right now, there's a lot yeah, of sectors exactly. that are on no planet earth would Ben Graham say that's a good idea. So, you so know? I think what you're saying is it takes balls to make alpha. And, and the- yeah, you gotta be different to, yeah. to make money and yeah. embrace and the pain. Yeah. So, so of those two factors, the value, if you will, and the momentum, yeah. Yeah. Which would you say are the most robust? Which is more robust? And you have to pick one. If you can only, if you're on uh, a desert yeah. island and you can only pick one. I would, would say empirically, without a doubt, momentum is the most robust. It just shows up in everything, shows up in out of samples, shows up in different markets. It is more baked in the cake or the DNA of the marketplace than value is. And the reason I believe that is value is very intuitive buy cheap stuff everyone hates, oh, you get to make money. Like you could take a caveman on the street and they'll be like, yeah, it makes sense. So it's very intuitive. So even though it's painful and hard to do, most people are willing to do it. Momentum is you're going to buy the most high flying stocks, usually at their 52 week high. Most people are like, well, I don't want to be a bag holder. Like I'm selling at that. It's not intuitive to many people. You got some weirdos like CMTs and guys like you that, that get it. But most normal people, like if I told my wife, we're going to go buy a stock that's at its, its peak. She'd be like, you're crazy, man. Let's go buy the one that's down 50% because it's just not intuitive. So I think the reason momentum works and will continue to work is it's a greed trade, but it's one that's difficult for people to like exploit because it, it doesn't feel right to them. So I think that's why we'll always see it 
more robust and larger in the data than value. Even though obviously my first love is value, I just have to admit that momentum is just more backed by data, bottom line. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to say that or not, because I've asked the question before to other people with academic background, even though they see the data, they still will back up the value, which to me is like, wow, okay, it's not that value is a good thing. I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm yeah. just saying yeah. that from what I've seen, that it is the most robust, like more reliable. Like if I had to pick one, I'd only pick yeah. that, but it doesn't but it make sense. sense. It doesn't make sense from my background. You know, I, I kind of went full circle from fundamental to technical, but so I want to switch gears a little bit if we can. Uh, and as a quant person, I know you don't focus on fundamental analysis or macro analysis in terms of qualitative type, but yeah. I'd like to get your yeah. take a little bit because you have the background and you're watching the markets. What mm -hmm. is your take on inflation now? Do you think inflation, based on what you know, and I know this, it's a tough target. Yeah. To what is your feelings and analysis on inflation saved? Is it something that's going to be with us for a while, or do you think it's something that's going to just mitigate? The right answer is, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows, but intuitively to me over the long haul, I don't see how you can't have inflation, right? We spend way too much damn money and no one's paying for it, right? So I mean, at some point, if you have too many dollars chasing too few goods, it just in my simple lizard brain, and I feel like that's the circumstance right now. I feel like some sort of inflation seems like a reasonable thing that you at least want to have deep risk hedges against. I like I don't know if this one's transitory or if we're gonna go to hyperinflation or these sort of things. I don't I don't think I just don't know. But I certainly think inflation is like a real risk that one should strongly consider protecting against and thinking about in the portfolio. But that said, I also could see real risk that could go depression, Japan stuff, right? Like, okay, let's say we do a mass because we spend way too much money. We're like drunken sailors at like the macro level. And at some point, someone's got to pay for it. So how does that happen? Well, you got to raise taxes. You got to charge capital. Well, that's going to kill demand, which could ironically actually put you in like a demand destruction phase where now you could go into a depression that now we just have yeah, there's a lot of money out there, but there's no velocity to it. It just sits in banks all day long and we could slowly do it like Japan's done. And so I could see that happening too. Like if the government does some crazy policies that, that could go that way. So I just don't know, which is why I love trend falling and managed futures, right? I'm just going to look at the commodity complex, the bond complex, whatever it is. And if something's moving, I'm owning. If something's not moving, I'm shorting or not owning it. That's the only way that I know how to deal with this inflation deflation thing, because I'm not smart enough to like know where we're going. And it's dynamic. It changes. You, you can't just say, like, I can't say right now, yep, inflation's happening in 10 years. What if North Korea like sends a nuclear bomb to Alaska and all of a sudden people get super afraid and we just, no one goes out and buys it. We're in a depression, brother. We're not in inflation anymore. Like, you're going to update your estimate on that, and that kind of shit could happen. So I just don't know. I think you got to yeah. dynamically trade it across assets that do inflation and deflation and just be tactical. But yeah. Yeah, and that, goes, that falls topic. into your three bucket. You have the cash reserve that gets you through the five years or whatever that number yeah. is, the buffer, if you will, and then you've got yeah. your more tactical middle, and then you've got the yeah. swing for the fence 
And that, yeah, that helps long, long game. We don't care about the short run ball thing. And it helps you, you it. stay focused. It helps you stay in the game and all those buckets. So that regardless yeah. of it's almost like an all weather type of a thing. And this kind of brings me to this whole thing with the crypto. I cannot do a pod. I get interviewed on podcasts too. Yeah. I cannot go to an interview without somebody asking me about Bitcoin and crypto. I'm kind of tired of answering the question. But, yeah, yeah, um, sure. Uh, but I have to ask you the question. So, uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? Or do you give much thought to the whole crypto concept, other than trend I mean, following it? Yeah, I would trend follow it, right? Like, I find it interesting, fascinating, and it's like the ultimate trend following asset of all time right now. So, I think it's great from that perspective. Now, if you were to ask me, like, fundamentally, are you like a hodl? To me, it seems like a very speculative bet where there's massive upside, but massive risk. And I don't know on a risk adjusted basis if I would muck with it at scale, right? It just seems like it has too many elements from a behavioral psychology standpoint of a bubble, right? From an investment perspective, like there, and you can love the company, hate the stock, right? I'm like that with crypto. I love the company, hate the stock, right? I love the idea of what crypto could do. I live in Puerto Rico right now, by the way, and I'm surrounded oh. by people that don't even know what an ETF is. And so I love it because it's like very libertarian and like pull, like decentralized finance, like pulls out a lot of like command control from like government. So, you know, I'm a libertarian minded person. So I think it's awesome. It's so much more efficient to like transact globally. Like it makes all the sense in the world, like functionally, like I said, I love the company but I hate the stock. I feel like it's just, it's too volatile, it's too speculative. It's not backed by anything. Which horse is gonna win this race? I don't know. So I think as an investment, it's a little bit too high risk reward and has a shitty sharp ratio to me, but I love the concept. I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan of the company, not the stock is the best way to say yeah, it. That's yeah, I told, I'm 100% with you on everything you just said. So uh, um, looking at the fundamentals of the stock market, valuations yeah. are pretty Crazy. rich. So yeah. what, do you, what is your, <laughs> yeah, so you, you kind of put this mosaic together and, and yeah. you kind of wonder about how that it almost feels like the managed future stuff could surprise people to the upside in the next, I don't know, sometime soon. Um, Lewis, you've been in this business long enough. We already know the story, right? Right now, is the exact time when you want to have more trend following, more managed futures. Basically, everything that's been horrific as a trade or investment the last 10, 15 years since the last blow up is probably exactly what you want to own in spades right now. Guess how many people want to buy that stuff right now? Nobody. Very little. It's all about YOLO. If you look at macro, there's obviously some weirdos like us that are into that or like the, you know, going a whole like the world's blowing up. But most people just look at flows out of like all managed futures, like all these types of products. It's been a total bloodbath. What does that mean? Well, I don't know when, but just like the cycle of life, eventually all the risk assets, all the things that are crazy overvalued and all the stories about profit margins go to infinity, it's all going to blow up. Right. And what's going to happen? All the things that you do, all the risk management, all the things that haven't worked for 15 years are going to kill it, but it's going to be too late. No one's going to own them. And then the next cycle is like, well, let's get rid of stocks. Let's start buying these alts. Let's start buying 
It's just like cycle life, man. I just see this, like, I just, I see this cycle repeat. Like, I've seen it four crazy. times in my career so far. Yeah. It's, it, it's just, this is going to be the like, fifth. <laughs> it's going to be the fifth. It's like, yeah, I've probably seen four or three of them. You're probably a little bit wiser than me, but it does, can't you just see the train wreck coming? Like, like <laughs> yes, <laughs> I can see it coming. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the ETF business because you, yeah. one of the things that baffles me is on one hand, I like ETFs because I like the tax part of it. On the other hand, sure. I hate the fact that almost all of them are passive, which is great for you, for your business, because yeah. you're something yeah. different in that world. Can you explain to the average layperson why are they more tax efficient? Why is it better? What, what's going on underneath the hood yeah, yeah, yeah. that actually so makes I'll, it better? I'll walk you through the basics, right? And with the most simple example, and this may not be exactly, but it, it gets the point across, right? So let's say you're an ETF and you buy a share of Microsoft for a dollar, okay? Well, no, sorry, you run a mutual fund, you run a managed account, and you run a hedge fund and an ETF. So every wrapper you can do, all of them, you set up these four vehicles and you say, we're going to buy Microsoft. You buy it for a dollar. Let's say five years from now, it goes to $100. And you're like, you know what? I don't want to own Microsoft anymore. I want to own Tesla, let's say, right? So what are you going to do? Well, you'd have to sell Microsoft to get the $100 to go buy Tesla. In a mutual fund, you got a $99 capital gain distribution. In an SMA, you got a $99 capital gain distribution. In a hedge fund, which would run through an LP, a limited partnership, you're going to have a $99 capital gain distribution. And if you sold it in ETF, you would have a $99 capital gain distribution. But here's the difference. ETFs don't sell stocks. They exchange them. So what an ETF would do is we would create a basket that we would be called a custom redemption basket where we stuff that $100 Microsoft into this basket that we deliver in kind out to a bank. And then simultaneously to that, we do a custom creation basket of let's say $100 in cash. Both tax-free transactions. What did we do? We got rid of Microsoft tax-free. We received $100 in cash tax-free. We then take that $100 and buy Tesla. We bought Tesla with new basis of $100. We have no taxable distribution because we haven't bought or sold anything. Well, we bought Tesla, but we bought something. We didn't sell anything. We distributed out in kind. So that's why ETFs are so more tax efficient is they're basically like a traditional IRA. You have to pay the tax eventually because when you sell your ETF shares, you got to pay the man, right? But from now until 50 years, when you sell anything, that ETF can do, you know, buy, sell, move, do this, whatever. And you get a compound tax-free until that point. So it's like a traditional IRA, basically, that is it, but you can use it at scale, right? You could put a billion dollars in ETF, not 5K a year or whatever. That's really the difference. The ability to transact in kind and essentially like exchange stocks and get them out of the portfolio, suck them in without tax consequence. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Then that makes a lot of sense. So when people think about what's vehicle they're going to put their money in, yeah, when would they say I, I, an SMA is okay or an hedge fund is okay? Well, like so, what would so, be yeah, so, so ETF is not a panacea because if you're doing something like it only really can do in-kind transactions on things that you can transact in kind, which is essentially equities and bonds. 
derivatives, call options, technically you can, that's something that's coming down the pipe. So maybe in the future, you can do more derivatives in kind. It's, it's kind of not there yet, but like futures doesn't matter. If you're day trading, you can't like, it's actually a lot of work to do the customs and rebounds. And it's not like it just happens. If a strategy trades too much, you just realistically can't use that capability. So something that's like higher frequency, super tactical, can change every single day or stuff that's in derivative space, like futures, like managed futures is not really, there's no benefit to the ETF wrapper, in my opinion. Those just don't work. So other wrappers might be better. Another one were things where you want, like you don't want transparency. In ETF, you have to disclose what you're doing every single day, right? In a hedge fund, you don't. In a mutual fund, you do, but it's quarterly delayed, SMA, same thing. And then the other big disadvantage of an ETF or a mutual fund is you can't distribute losses. So the good news about an ETF is you can defer forever. You have total flexibility to do whatever the heck you want. And there actually are some techniques you can get losses in SMA with ETFs, but it's beyond this discussion. But one mm -hmm. thing that's nice about an SMA is if you do have a loss and you book it, you can pass it through, right? And then you can use that to offset other things where you can't pass through losses in an ETF. You, you, have to, you can only use them and roll them forward. So you know, if you're doing long, short strategies in an SMA, because usually your short book will lose, lose a lot, it's kind of, it could be nice because you get, you get this natural buoy of like losses all the time. If you're doing like these, you know, the tax loss harvesting programs on the index funds, where if you're never trading that much, an S&P, if you just buy the S&P and never do much, it's pretty tax efficient. So if you can tax loss harvest it, maybe at the margin, you get more benefits there because the ETF wrapper is not saving you that much. So you can make an argument for an SMA there. It just depends, basically. It's not like an ETF is, is God's gift to everything. Mm. But it works really well with the long-only factor portfolios yes. that you're doing. because oh, it's it's a, there's no, yeah, there's no debate. Like if you're doing factors, something's kind of actively trading or tactical, it's ETFs the best game in town by a long shot. But there's other things where, just to be fair, it's not the best for everything, even though... A lot of like more marketing focused firms, they'll, they'll put anything in an ETF because people just assume like, oh, it's more tax efficient, lower cost. But right. they don't understand like if you put futures in a ETF, there is no tax benefit. All it does is actually lower your capital efficiency because there's all these like restrictions, restrictions on the 40 Act. Yeah, it actually makes it worse to do managed futures programs in an ETF, not better but people sell it because they hear managed futures and they're like, oh, it's an ETF. It must be awesome. And so it's really and, and important. Plus, like, well, also yeah. the distribution channels have more access to them. So, that, yep, so yep. that's what it's easier for them to raise money and facilitate yeah, yeah, distribution exactly. channels. The regulations definitely are keeping things from happening efficiently. This has been really great. Is there anything that you're working on right now that really excites you that you want to share? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, we're always doing fun stuff on like research stuff, and but we've been doing that for a long time. Kind of the new thing we're working on, because we're in the middle of it, is you know we run like an infrastructure business for ETFs and conversions. So right now there's like massive activity in like mutual funds converting to an ETF, hedge funds converting to an ETF, SMAs converting to an ETF. And we've kind of dialed it down on how to do that in a tax-free way so the conversion is not taxable. And as you can imagine, 
that is huge right now. We're just going to be able to bring a lot more people to market that are coming out of the shadows and other vehicles into the ETF space. And I just find that fascinating because I get a lot more exposure to a lot more people, a lot more strategies, it, just because we're like kind of like you were the infrastructure shovel salesman in these transactions. But it's a whole different view on the business than if you're on the let's build a better factor model side. So yeah. I find that really interesting right now. Yeah, that seems like it would have a lot of legs right now. Is it a separate company that you started? That and- it's, yeah, well, basically it, it's like we call it ETF Architect. It's still the, it's still all of us, but we're slowly like hiring a lot of people and like we're separating them just for mm-hmm. our own internal accounting because ETF Architect, the operating business, is growing crazy. Like we're having to hire people. Like you know, that's like a real business that could become like a billion dollar company someday. Mm. Whereas you know, Alpha Architect, the asset manager is a great business, but it's, we're a boutique asset manager doing weird, crazy things that not many people are interested in. So it's a great business and I love it personally. It's a lot of fun, but this other business is like, like could be like a monster enterprise. Yeah. Uh, It's a recurring revenue administration business, which is a great, yeah. and the trend is your friend right now. The trend is definitely your friend. No, no, exactly, man. (laughs) I always say it's to take people's garbage out and do their windows business. So it's not exactly fun, but those are big businesses in like doing sure. other people's dirty work. No one wants to do dirty work and we're good at doing dirty work. It turns out. So, Hey, whatever, all good. We'll do it. That um, is great. Well, that's great. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. Learned a lot. Yeah, and- no, appreciate the opportunity and, and love reading your stuff and learning from you as well. It's awesome. All right, buddy. Well, that's all for now. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, you got it, Lewis. Talk to you soon. For the latest episode of The Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please leave us a five-star review and comments. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. 